Hi, this is Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes. Today, we're doing something a little different on the podcast. We're actually bringing back the same uh, four people who recorded our first ever edition of the Order from Ashes podcast. So uh, I'm joined today by Sam Heller and Aaron Lund, who are both fellows at Century International, among other things, and uh, Michael Wahid Hanna, who was a fellow at the Century Foundation before he moved over to Crisis Group, where he runs the U.S. program. But he's doing us the pleasure of joining us on today's podcast, where we're going to talk about the regional uh, fallout and, and, and the way the Gaza war is playing out in the wider Middle East. So stepping a little bit away from the news and like the minute by minute developments that we're all following around the Gaza war and trying to take a bit of a regional perspective, uh, looking at different countries, different dynamics, uh, U.S. role, and so on. Uh, so uh, this is our 95th uh, episode of the Order from Ashes podcast uh, that you're listening to today. Uh, so welcome back, uh, founding Order from Ashes crew, uh, Michael and Sam and Aaron. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's good to be back with you guys. Nice to, to get the band back together again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, good to be back. Yeah, good to be back. So I think we'll 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 start with a little bit of a of a whirlwind tour, um, and I was interested maybe uh, starting with you, Michael, to to talk to talk about Egypt, uh, and then we'll go through uh, uh, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, uh, and then end with uh, the U.S. Uh, tell us, uh, Michael, how how the um, the way the war is unfolding, what kinds of pressures has it put on Egypt? Where is Egypt, uh, not just with regards to the war, but with regards to its own consequential internal internal crises? And how is that affecting regional dynamics now? Sure. Uh, you know, Egypt is in a unique position because of geography and history. Uh, it's also played this dual role of both sort of jailer uh, and uh, humanitarian access point. Uh, and it has a complicated history with Gaza and Hamas. Um, in in previous wars, if we look back to the 2014 war, uh, after after the coup, uh, when Abdel Fattah Sisi comes to power, Egypt takes uh, Egypt's views on regional policy really are a reflection um, of uh, of its domestic concerns. And so uh, at that point, it is in a sense maybe to the right of the Israelis. It wants to see Hamas crushed. It's anti-Islamism and anti-militancy are the kind of uh, 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 guiding force uh, for how they understand um, the region. Um, and it has, I think, uh, turned uh, somewhat more pragmatic in recent years. It, uh, I think Egypt came to the conclusion that uh, it needed to deal with Hamas. Uh, there was an insurgency, an intractable one in, in northern Sinai uh, that uh, was being impacted by spillover from Gaza. Um, there was a sense that uh, simply trying to bottle up Hamas in, in Gaza wasn't going to be uh, an effective way to deal with this problem, uh, that Egypt really had to re-engage with Hamas like it had in the past. And um, and so that's that's the kind of backdrop to to uh, to how Egypt uh, re-established contact uh, with Hamas. And it has seen that contact in in other bouts of fighting, 
um, as a way to express its relevance uh, to the United States and uh, and as a regional player. Um, so uh, when when the war when the war began, uh, I think there was um, uh, understandable focus on Egypt and the Rafah border crossing. Uh, when when Israel closed off all of its uh, access points uh, and it closed uh, and it shut off uh, electricity flowing to Gaza, Rafah becomes the kind of only entry point in into Gaza. Um, it becomes the the one uh, bottleneck for uh, all kinds of humanitarian assistance, food, water, fuel, um, and. Uh, there's no humanitarian assistance flowing into Gaza at that point because the Israelis have said they're not going to allow it. Uh, they bombed the Gaza side of, of Rafah uh, in a not very subtle message to the Egyptians that nothing can come uh, uh, into uh, or out of Gaza without uh, prior coordination with Israel. Um, so in, in the meantime, you know, Egypt's alarm at the situation is growing because uh, looking at the dire and deteriorating humanitarian situation, there is real concern about uh, what would happen to Gazans, what would happen to Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, there is this growing rhetoric inside Israel about uh, uh, pushing uh, effectively uh, Palestinians out of Gaza into Egypt, a kind of resuscitation of this uh, idea of a three-state solution, which uh, which is based on population transfer, um, and of course this this causes great uh, uh, consternation. Uh, this causes great consternation in Cairo, uh, looking at the trajectory of the war, uh, and. Uh, not wanting to be seen one as a betting uh, ethnic cleansing uh, that they would be allowing uh, effectively the transfer of the of the populace uh, from Gaza to uh, to Egypt, and of course worried about its own narrow national security interests about what this massive inflow of Palestinian displaced uh, would mean for security in in northern Sinai, and at the end of the day. How, how Egypt would be forced to effectively police this Palestinian population. So this 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 circulates in in uh, uh, in in the Israeli press. We hear about reports coming out of official organs of the state, but it is really just a non-starter for Cairo. Instead, the focus has been on trying to get humanitarian assistance up and running. Um, to alleviate the suffering on on the Palestinian side, um, and to be able to tend to Gazans in Gaza, that that this that the place to deal with these issues is within the Gaza Strip, um, and not within Egypt. Have have the Americans or the Israelis, to your knowledge, asked uh, Egypt privately or 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 via? Gulf interlocutors uh, uh, to do something like accept large numbers of, of Palestinians from Gaza? So after a few weeks, I think uh, once the United States uh, saw how seriously this uh, uh, alarmed Cairo, uh, the U.S. put out a statement saying that they uh, were against any kinds of forced displacement. There had been previous reporting suggesting that some Western diplomats had broached the idea of Egypt 
hosting uh, Palestinian displaced uh, in return for um, financial largesse. Obviously, Egypt is in a dire economic situation. Um, and those reports have been really knocked down pretty strenuously by Egyptian officials. Um, it doesn't seem as if there has been any kind of formal effort, uh, but this slow drumbeat of, uh, of uh, official statements uh, from uh, former and even some current Israeli officials uh, continues. Um, there were reports um, uh, yesterday about um, uh, an official uh, speaking about uh, about pushing uh, Palestinians um, out of Gaza into Egypt. And of course, intention in this in this setting doesn't matter, right? I mean, some uh, European officials I have spoken with have talked about uh, this being a kind of temporary measure. Um, but of course, uh, for Palestinians uh, with their particular history, uh, in which displacement uh, and forced transfer plays such a big role, um, the idea that they, uh, if they did leave their homes, they might never be able to come back is obviously quite resonant. Thanks. So turning to you, Aaron, uh, and and Syria, uh, you know, on the eve of October 7th, uh, there had been a sort of drumbeat of Israeli strikes on various maybe Iranian targets inside Syria. There had been a Syrian normalization with the uh, uh, Arab League and with, with other governments in the region. Um, and now, I mean, I, I've not seen a lot of material in the news about what's happening in Syria or how this war is affecting Syria, but one would have to presume uh, there are important uh, uh, implications for Syria. Can you tell us uh, how, how this is playing out inside Syria and for uh, the, the Assad regime? Yeah. So I think, I think the, uh, this is incredibly important to Syria, uh, but you're right that we don't hear a lot about it. And I mean, there's been no big speech from Assad or anything like that. There's been no significant flare-up in Syria, as you said. There's been more Israeli bombings, of including of the airports in Damascus and Aleppo. Um, there's been some fire coming from presumably Iranian groups, Iranian-backed groups inside Syria, and we've seen attacks on U.S. outposts and U.S. troops in in northeastern Syria by again, presumably these same groups. But there hasn't been, you know, real significant escalated tension with with Israel directly in the same way that we've seen in, for example, in, in southern Lebanon. And I think the that that is because, you know, this this is Syria's role basically in this uh axis of resistance as as Iran and its its allies style themselves is to be the transport corridor and the strategic depth for for Hezbollah. It has other roles to play as well, but, but that's the big one. Uh, and I think, um, I mean, there's, there's uh, Assad and, and Hamas, they've had a, <laughs> they've had a bad decade, actually, because Hamas joined the uprising against Assad. Pro-Hamas Palestinians and the Hamas groups in Syria, they joined the rebellion, they supported it, and they, they even formed some armed groups in in Syria. And Assad responded to that is in his usual fashion, raising a few Palestinian refugee camps. Um, but but they reconciled recently, and and at this point there's no there's no daylight between them in this issue. Uh, the Syrian government is completely aligned with with Hamas and with Iran and with Hezbollah on this issue. But there are these uh, 
um, uh, Syria's role is still to sort of stay out of this to the extent possible, both because I think the country is in no shape to to handle a, a major uh, conflict with Israel. It's still in the state of civil war, divided between several actors. Um, this is actually one of the few issues that Assad and his opposition agrees on. You, you see the 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 Turkish-backed opposition up north, and you see the the jihadis in Idlib. They they all they're all pro Hamas at this point, uh, and so is Assad. Well, I mean, but I'm, sorry, yeah. not to cut you off, but one of the, one of the questions I have, so you know, th- threaded throughout this conversation is going to be questions of potential escalation, intentional or accidental, and and of course we're we're all we're all speculating or talking about that. But I'm also interested in uh, side issues that governments or players are going to opportunistically take advantage of addressing in this moment when global attention is so focused on what's happening inside Gaza. And that's something I'm curious about. Are there uh, things on Assad's wish list uh, that he's been unable uh, or unwilling to to, to risk trying to pull off uh, and that he might be in the process of doing now uh, with the assumption that, that the region and international bodies are not going to be focusing on uh, on on bad actions he might he might take. I mean, there might be. He he wants to do a lot of stuff against the the rebels in the in the northwest. Of course, I think where there could be something uh, is you know you have this escalated pressure on the U.S. bases in the northeast, and that is now in the context of Gaza. That's the Iranian groups, Iranian-backed groups retaliating as they see it uh, for for what Israel does uh, and trying to push the United States to, to reign in Israel, basically. But that has the effect of also adding pressure to the U.S. presence in the northeast, in northeast Syria. So so it, it sort of fulfills one of Assad's goals to have that escalation. But I think, I mean, it's a very tricky situation because you also have Russia present in Syria, right? Um, and Russia is not and does not want to become part of any sort of conflict with Israel. It's it's you know very critical of Israel. Uh, has been sort of you know backing the Palestinian side more in, in this in this conflict, but they absolutely do not want any form of shooting war with Israel. And they you know they're afraid, I think, of of, of uh, Iran, Assad, Hezbollah, and the others drawing that kind of fire onto Lebanon because then that would spread into Syria very quickly. And then the question becomes, what does Russia do? Does it protect its ally or does, does it not, you know? Have you learned anything new uh, or gained any sort of new understanding of Iran's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, exactly sure how to phrase this, but uh, Iran's abil- command and control ability or, or sort of how tight is the Iranian authority over the loose web of, of uh, allies that, that it calls the, the axis of resistance? I mean, I think it varies, and I think it's, you know, everyone, uh, and me included, uh, I think believe that Hezbollah is very, very close to to Iran to the extent that it's almost a a piece of the sorry Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard apparatus uh, in in the region. Uh, then you have Hamas, which obviously was at odds with Iran and with with uh, with Syria for a long while. Uh, you have the Houthis that are sort of their own creature, and I think it varies, but but fundamentally they're all agreed on what to do now. I think I think they they all see this as something there where where they need to fight for their own interests in in concert. Uh, I guess if it comes to a to the point where where uh, 
where Israel starts attacking them and not just Hamas, then maybe that understanding would be tested. Uh, but we haven't got there yet. Um, and I think that's the case with Assad as well. Uh, he, he or his regime, uh, you know, they, they, I don't think they see another way to, to deal with this. They need to support Hamas because all of their allies are, are on board this train and they need to be too. Uh, they need to back Hezbollah. It's important to Syria as well. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Sam, let's turn to you. Uh, uh, you have a bit of a natural segue with uh, the mention of Hezbollah. Uh, but tell us a little bit about how you see one um, how you see this playing out for Lebanon uh, in terms of its own sort of viability as a uh, 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 failing state on the edge of collapse as you uh, 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 sort of revealed in your recent quite detailed report of, of uh, the way Lebanon's state is failing. And two, what, um, what we're learning about Hezbollah's uh, calculations of its own interest and, and role uh, as an antagonist uh, to Israel and as a power in the region. Um, well, I mean, it seems like Lebanon's sort of uh, liminal semi-collapse uh, continues apace. Um, the uh, the crisis uh, on Lebanon's southern border uh, and in the south of the country seems not to have uh, necessarily distracted uh, the country's political class uh, from the you know the typical. Uh, theatrics and backbiting and various shenanigans. It hasn't um, somehow impelled them to become uh, more serious uh, about the um, kind of uh, uh, sort of the disintegrating state of the country. Um, but uh, yeah, in parallel, there is this kind of low grade war playing out. Um, on uh, uh, in southern Lebanon between uh, Hezbollah and then secondarily uh, a number of kind of smaller like-minded uh, sort of uh, resistance in quotes uh, factions uh, and the Israeli military. Um, now that's something that basically started from from day two uh, of the war in Israel and Gaza. Um, when uh, on October 8th, the day after uh, Hamas's uh, initial attack on uh, kind of areas uh, surrounding Gaza, uh, Hezbollah uh, targeted uh, an Israeli position on the uh, on the border, um, kind of both uh, as like they framed it as both uh, a step towards uh, like the liberation of uh Kind of remaining occupied uh, Israeli territory, and then also in solidarity with uh, with Gaza. Do, I mean, do you get, um, do you get the impression that Hezbollah is either positioning itself or being positioned by Iran as the spokesperson for the wider web of, uh, not a web, the wider sort of coalition of resistance actors, uh, or or is that a misread of Nasrallah's uh, visibility and his speeches and his his speaking for? the resistance access as a, as a sort of wider entity. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily been, uh, the intent. It definitely seems to have been, uh, the effect, right? I mean, it just seems a, a reality that there is no 
uh, other kind of leader of a uh, of a similar like resistance faction or government that is uh, that is weighing in and that is kind of taking taken as seriously uh, on the state, you know, not just of kind of Hezbollah's contribution to the war, but also the uh, uh, the roles of its other uh, allies in the Iran-led uh, axis of resistance regionally. Um, I mean, I was going to say. Uh, you're talking about like what uh, uh, with Aaron about what the uh, uh, the Syrians are doing, you know, what what is their kind of contribution to the war? Um, and then uh, like Nasrallah actually uh, addressed this in the second speech that he uh, has given since October 7th, in which he gave sort of a like a tour to horizon um like he went through the uh, sort of division of labor of the various resistance act- actors regionally, uh, and then their contribution to this. Uh, I mean, you know, now uh, like uh, region-spanning uh, conflict, and uh, on the Syrian specifically, he said that uh, he did some sort of some expectations management, basically saying that. Uh, you know that they're coming off of uh, like a decade of uh, of war. Uh, that they are constricted, uh, sort of blockaded, besieged economically, uh, and that realistically, um, Hezbollah's constituency, uh, like other sort of like-minded publics around the region, cannot expect more from the Syrians. So. Let's. Uh, I, I want to go on a on a sort of faster go around th- to the three of you now that we've laid out this uh, the sort of political geography. Um, and Michael, I don't know if this is too much to ask you to uh, uh, to start with, but I'm wondering uh, how much have has ha, okay. Let me put it this way: Has the war changed the state of play uh, in terms of the regional rivalry between the Gulf and, and Iran, um, and has it changed the general trajectory uh, by which we were seeing the Gulf powers uh, uh, move towards deeper ties with Israel? Um, yeah, that's for the fast round. Um, well, what what I would say, I mean, I, I think there's been a lot of downplaying of the the kind of regional detente. We've seen uh, a variety of tracks in which um, the countries of the region have maybe pulled back a little bit from the the kind of ruinous interventionism, interventionism that followed the Arab uprisings. Uh, and one of those key tracks has been the Gulf-Iran track. We've seen uh, the UAE first and then Saudi Arabia reestablish diplomatic relations. Um, and if anything, we've seen a kind of greater frequency of contact between the Gulf um, and Saudi in particular uh, and Iran. At the recent summit, there was uh, Iranian representation in Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and you know, I, I think it hasn't um, fundamentally altered the, the, the rivalry itself, the differences, the disputes, but it has put in place a mechanism by which perhaps uh, the Gulf and Saudi in particular can uh, maybe manage uh, manage relations with Iran in the midst of crisis. Um, and it so far does not look like this is a vector for 
uh, regional escalation. And isn't it, is it not a sort of positive, uh, I don't know, surprise, but a positive development that that channel, the Saudi Iran channel seems to have functioned well, uh, during this, during this period of conflict rather than fraying or breaking down? I don't know if it's a surprise. I mean, if we think about why the Saudis and why the Emiratis and others have chosen this approach, um, I think there was a recognition of, uh, uh, of the kind of ambitious economic agendas these countries have, particularly Saudi with Vision 2030, um, and um, a reassessment of, uh, of perhaps how best to manage their relations with Iran, uh, and a recognition at heart that um, a more militarized approach would frankly be ruinous. Um, and, you know, just a few... Um, hints of what this could look like with the with the the strike on uh Saudi refining capacity and then the strike the Houthi strike on Abu Dhabi um in uh I guess it was January 2021 um I, I think really changed the way these actors thought about uh their vulnerability their risk uh and so it's not totally surprising to me that that this continues if anything I I think the the broader risk of regionalization of conflict has probably uh, uh, made them uh, more uh, committed uh, to managing this relation and and not seeing things uh, spill out of control on this front. In terms of in terms of the broader push for normalization, uh, and obviously the most uh, high profile of those um, has been. Uh, the reported uh, talks between uh, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, and effectively the United States. Um, and, you know, I think clearly those are on pause. Um, I don't think there's any unwinding of the other agreements, the so-called Abraham Accords, which normalized relations between primarily the, uh, the UAE and, and Bahrain and Israel. You know, those are here to stay. Um, th those aren't going to be ruptured. Um, uh, you know, the neither of those countries has actually even pulled their ambassadors, right? They're, um, they reflect pretty robust uh, relations, uh, obviously damaged and chilled, uh, and public opinion becomes an issue for these countries, but uh, nothing that is going to really uh, uh, see these agreements uh, rescinded. That's just not in the cards. But in terms of the the other the, the the ongoing effort pause now to normalize relations between Saudi uh, and Israel, uh, you know obviously Saudi Arabia is taking a different, very public posture in terms of what it wants to see next, a real embrace of um, the two-state uh, formula. There had been a lot of speculation of what it would take on the Palestinian front to get Saudi to agree to this broader package. Um, according to the Israelis, it was very minimal. Uh, you know, Netanyahu basically uh, in public suggested that this was a kind of uh, a version of the economic peace that they had pursued, which didn't really address the fundamental political questions at the at the heart of the uh, of the Palestinian national movement. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's hard to know what next on that front. I don't think it's dead. Uh, I think it is uh, on pause. I think there's no way in this regional climate uh, that Saudi Arabia could uh, pursue uh, vigorously pursue this kind of, of normalization deal. 
but some of the underlying uh, security features that uh, that are bilateral between the United States and Saudi Arabia represent really longstanding asks, uh, longstanding and and pretty far-reaching uh, uh, commitments, um, and those will remain very attractive to Saudi Arabia. So I'm. I'm guessing that that it's that we will see an effort to resuscitate this, you know, final point. Uh, obviously, much of much of uh, much of that will then depend on what Gaza looks like, what the Palestinian question looks like, uh, and that's um, quite open ended at the moment. So, and and uh, and for this for purposes of this podcast, we're we're not focusing on what's happening inside Gaza and Israel, although that's. Obviously, at the I think at the forefront of of our minds as we analyze these cascading consequences, Aaron, I wanted to ask you uh, about how uh, sort of great power competition or or international influence and intervention are affected, if at all, uh, by these changing dynamics. And you know, I have in mind questions like. Uh, could, you know, the idea of waning U.S. influence, the idea that I think you've really shown in Syria that the that Europe, uh, although it spends a lot of money and matters, is has not really been an effective driver. Um, and I'm also thinking about the uh, perhaps oversold but nonetheless growing diplomatic role of China in the region. And I was actually just talking to our our colleague Sajad uh, earlier today before recording this. Uh, so it'll be a few weeks uh, in the past by the time this podcast airs. But he was telling me about how um, uh, Arab foreign ministers are planning to gather in China uh, to talk about their, their response to uh, the Gaza war. And he was saying this is the, 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 you know, the first time that he's ever heard of a gathering of Arab foreign ministers in China. Um, and, uh, and that that sort of spells something about if anything, the, the region wanting to be seen as not having all its eggs in a, uh, you know, in an American basket. Well, I mean, I think that's true to an extent, and it's probably true like in the very long term. But I think at the same time, this crisis really shows that, you know, it's 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 all about the United States. No one, you know, everyone listens to Europe, everyone listens to Russia, everyone listens to China. Uh, but ultimately, I think everyone in the region pays more attention to, you know, what's in the New York Times about rifts within the Pentagon or whatever, than what Russia says, what China says. Because they know that the only actor that can credibly influence Israel, that's the United States. And the only actor that I think can stitch together some sort of overarching big deal, if that's needed, uh, and then move some Arab allies to, into that, is also the United States. And that might not last forever, but it's still true, I think. Um, and, and you know, regarding China, um, you know, China has sort of stepped up a little bit more diplomatically, taken this position that's sort of more more uh, overtly leaning to the Palestinian side or the Arab side, I would say. Uh, but really, what, what do people expect, you know? China and Russia at this point can, can block uh, UN resolutions if they want to. Uh, Russia has done so. The United States has done so as well. But, you know, I, I, I still think this is... This is uh, a sign of the maybe lingering, but but still very sort of forceful U.S. dominance in the region. Well, and let me ask about the U.S. Uh, as, as the only, I think, not non-American on this on in this conversation. Um, I, I wonder, is there a price to pay? 
for the United States in terms of uh, influence, uh, tr- you know, transactional things it wants on the war in Ukraine or in oil markets or other things for having been seen to be so uncritically uh, on the same side as the Israeli government and, and no longer even having a sort of pretense of being an honest broker uh, between Israel and Palestine, but, but simply a sort of bear hug of Israel. Is that, is that going to have a cost or is it, or is the only cost outrage in public opinion, but no actual sort of policy uh, uh, blowback? No, I mean, I think it does have a cost. It's a soft power disaster. Uh, but, you know, it's not news that the United States is pro-Israel. It's just that it's very, you know, very apparent now in a, in a very unappealing way to, to people in the region. Um, I think, it, I mean, you, you you do have a bunch of other countries that, that are U.S. allies or consider themselves U.S. allies who now feel that they have been, uh, you know, thrown aside by the United States, which only focuses on Israeli concerns. They're not happy about that. Um and but but I mean ultimately I think this is as as Michael said as well I mean all these basic interests uh, for example Saudi Israeli discussions you know that's still there in the background somehow but but I I I mean I do think it carries a cost it's not just public opinion it's 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 the sort of the understanding of these leaders of 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 how angry people are and and what what the cost is of standing next to the United States and what the uh, you know how reliable is the United States how rational is the United States in 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 regional policy making and i think there are question marks about that and it also i mean it 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 does something to and again i'm <laughs> the only non-american in this conversation so so maybe you should talk about this but but it does something to to us politics as well we've seen, seen these polls about biden uh, having having terrible numbers with with young Americans over this issue, uh, and and Trump doing very well in the polls compared to Biden, and and that's also something the people watch in the region as well. Uh, I think yeah. that's a whole separate podcast, but one that I'm sure, very interested sure. in doing. Um, so, Sam, I mean, let me segue to you. Uh, you've talked a lot about the risks of a wider regional war that directly implicates the United States uh, as a series of a, a sort of, you know, either careless or, or simply accidental escalation. And, you know, we see every day incidents that in normal times we'd be terrified by, you know, uh, drone strikes on Qatar Hezbollah leaders in Iraq, uh, you know, Hezbollah, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah striking military targets inside Israel, Israel striking civilian targets, targeting civilians inside uh, a journalist, sorry, inside Lebanon and so on. These are all things that Again, pre-October 7th, we'd look at these and think, oh my God, are we about to see a regional war? Uh, and and now we have two U.S. aircraft carrier groups deployed very specifically for supposed deterrence uh, region uh, reasons, but which sort of stick a U.S. tripwire right in the middle of this mess. So I'm wondering what you see now. We're, we're at the time of this recording, we're in the seventh week of the war. Uh, what do you see as, uh, like, how do you rate the risks of a wider war that implicates the United States? Um, and in general, uh, how has the U.S.'s approach to deterrence uh, worked to uh, uh, create uh, deterrence? Well, I mean, so I'm uh, I'm still pretty worried. Um, I mean, I don't think that, you know, we've seen a uh, sort of like a regional inferno uh, yet. Um, but I think that things are still heading in a bad escalatory direction. Um, and it's not clear, uh, what 
at any point could, uh, you know, could set things off and uh, have a, a conflict really spiral into something that is even more uh, uh, bloody and wild. Um, I mean, it seems that maybe kind of the, the uh, escalation has been slower in coming because of a few factors, right? I think that when, uh, when you and I, uh, wrote our piece uh, shortly after October 7th, warning about the risk of regional war. There's been kind of a, a few things since then that have, uh, you know, with there where events have uh, kind of diverged uh, from from our reading. Um, one of them is that, uh, you know, we, we had imagined that, uh, um, that the uh, U.S.'s intervention uh, on, uh, on, uh, Israel's behalf uh, against uh, Hezbollah or Iran or linked actors, uh, that that's what would set off uh, the involvement of uh, like various Iraqi um, factions uh, or Yemen's Houthis, um, which apparently was not the case because uh, they just engaged from very early on and then, uh, you know, have remained uh, involved uh, at, you know, uh, in their own ways. Um, but other, uh, other factors that I think have so far mitigated, uh, the risk of, uh, uh, of a regional, uh, escalation and war have been that, uh, one, um, early on, there was very little, uh, uh, little clarity about what, uh, Hezbollah's red lines would be, uh, and then what might, um, what might uh, trigger uh, or kind of cause Hezbollah to uh, uh, to substantially uh, escalate its uh, its participation in the war? Um, I think that you know, obviously, there was some ambiguity there. Um, I think some of that has been deliberate, right? I think uh, Hezbollah's Nasrallah actually uh, has. He joked about this uh, in his uh, his first speech after October seventh, but I think that the my best understanding of their real kind of red line uh, at which they need to uh, to fully engage in the war um, is uh, if uh, Hamas seemed like it was on the verge of being wiped out and neutralized entirely, which. Uh, Kind of fortunately for the prospects of regional war, Hezbollah has uh, seems to have assessed is uh, you know not not proximate. So right? it turns out Hezbollah isn't doesn't really care about uh, indiscriminate targeting of Palestinian civilians or the destruction of Gaza's infrastructure uh, or these sort of high death tolls as long as it can uh, lay claim that its uh, sibling. Uh, resistance organization Hamas is surviving as an organization, uh, then well, Hezbollah doesn't need to full on escalate in the war, which by the way, speaks- I mean, well, they, I mean, the thing is they, they care enough to, uh, I mean, to remain involved, to be kind of steadily and incrementally escalating their attacks, uh, and to so far, uh, you know, contribute a, a, a non, uh, a not insignificant number of, uh, Hezbollah KIAs, right? So, I mean, so this is when, you know, more than 50, might, more than 50 Hezbollah fighters killed since, uh, the fighting accelerated. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I think that, you know, people, uh, some people might say that, you know, Hezbollah's uh, kind of involvement is is token or pro forma, but I think that... No, that's you know, silly because are, it's, it's its level of, of engagement is, again, something that in normal times we would consider an actual war. We would characterize what's happening across the boundary between Israel and Lebanon as a war, were we not yeah. comparing it to the much more escalated war in, in Gaza. I mean, I was going to say... And, here, wait, the, and then can I also, I just also want to add that, I mean, so the other... Uh, mitigating factor uh, since October 7th has been that um, to the U.S., uh, uh, the Biden administration uh, deployed these two carrier groups to the region. They deployed other military forces to the region uh, and then conveyed, uh, you know, publicly consistently like this very strong uh, deterrent message uh, to uh, Hezbollah and Iran not to broaden the war, uh, not to, uh, um you know, to become involved. Uh, and, uh, again, kind of fortunately for, you know, the prospects of a totally kind of uncontrolled spiraling, uh, regional conflict, uh, the U S has taken a pretty, uh, like a pretty loose approach to, uh, or, you know, reading of like what it means to actually join the war. Uh, so they say now that, oh, you know, deterrence is working even as, uh, you know, this, this escalating exchange of fire is ongoing between the IDF and Hezbollah as, uh, Iraqi factions, uh, are bombarding, uh, you know, U S forces in Syria and Iraq on a, you know, multiple, multiple daily basis. Uh, and as the Houthis, uh, <laughs> are sending, uh, are firing, uh, you know, surface to surface missiles at a lot, uh, and then drones as well. And then have now, uh, uh, captured a, uh, an Israeli owned, uh, cargo vessel. Right. So I think that for, I mean, just, you know, in the interest of kind of avoiding a, uh, like a wild regional shootout, um, you know, fortunately, I guess, you know, the, the U S have, uh, has looked at all that and then said that deterrence is working and it, it does not trigger, uh, the type of, uh, the type of intervention that it seemed to threaten with that initial mission, uh, military deployment. Thanks, Sam. And and I was just going to add one of the big structural problems uh, in the region right now. And I mean, it's, it's, it's been this way for a long time, but I think it's gotten worse. And this is an insight I originally stole from Aaron Lund, uh, is that what's good for uh, what's good for these movements uh, is not uh, always and, and often is contradictory to what's good for their their own followers and communities. So uh, Hezbollah can fight a war with with Israel that destroys much of Lebanon and Hezbollah will come out organizationally as stronger, stronger, even if it's terrible for Lebanon. Um, and, and so we end up with these sort of, uh, interest gaps, uh, between, you know, constituencies and, and the groups that purport to represent them. So we've, uh, we've been talking for about 45 minutes. Uh, and I think we probably owe it to our listeners to wrap up. Um, I did want to go around really quickly and ask each of you, uh, uh, you don't have to answer this question, uh, but answer it if you have an answer. Which is, um, you know, now that we've we're, we're, we've been watching this unfold since October seventh, uh, 
Is there one assumption or idea you had prior to October 7th that has uh, changed or that has been completely proven wrong or overtaken uh, by events uh, since then? And we'll start with you, Michael. Yeah, I think one really interesting development uh, and it's been it's been maybe changing over time, but has really accelerated since since October 7th um, is the patching up of uh, relations among um, the Sunni and Shiite uh, uh, portions of the axis of resistance. I mean, Aaron alluded to this uh, to this rupture that happens in Syria but it's not so long ago uh, at the kind of art uh, at the height of the the Syrian civil war when you know sunni militants and much of the uh, of the sunni arab world comes to really detest and loathe uh, hassan nasrallah and hezbollah you know a far cry from the kind of adulation that he received in 2006 uh, during the war with israel um, and you know the primary lens for a period. Uh, the primary lens through which you know regional uh, relations were refracted was sectarian, um, and um, you know the the that acrimony was really deep seated. You saw you know supporters of of the Syrian rebels sort of gleeful when when uh, Israel was bombing uh, the regime in 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 Damascus and elsewhere, um, and. You know, this has, you know, that 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 kind of atmosphere has has changed quite a bit, uh, and we, uh, you know, we're not hearing about those sectarian divides uh, in the same way that we uh, we had for almost a decade. Thanks, uh, Michael. Uh, Aaron, what about you? Yeah, I just just a comment on on what Michael said there. I think uh, just I, I I when he said that, I I I just got to thinking that. You know, you, you've had this sort of uh, moment of of de-escalation or reconciliation or rapprochement in the region since about late 2020, I guess, with you know both the sort of Qatari, Saudi, Emirati divide uh, not healing, but but sort of closing a little bit, and then Iranian Saudi uh, meetings and so on, and and the Houthi uh, Yemeni ceasefire, and I just you know it's worth thinking about. I think that. Had that not happened, and this conflict had erupted when the Houthis were still uh, firing ballistic missiles into Abu Dhabi, uh, this would have been a very different conflict, I think. And that, I think, shows the sort of the the, the usefulness of not having a lot of tension and conflict in the region as a baseline. Uh, not a brilliant insight, I think, but still something that worth worth considering, I think. Uh, regarding what I've learned or, or, or found out during this conflict, I, I, a lot, I think. I, I'm not sure I can point to one single thing. I'm, I'm just baffled and confused by the whole thing. Uh, beyond the sort of the, <laughs> beyond sort of the 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 the, the Hamas uh, attack, the massacres of, of, of October seventh, which shocked me as, as 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 they did everyone, I think. And not just in the moral sense, but in sort of the political and the and the uh, just operational sense, I guess. They just that they could do such a thing. What what on um, earth did they hope to achieve that would be good yeah, for no, them? No, no, not this? just that, but the fact that they were capable of it physically, materially. Uh, I, I I was not prepared for that. Uh, and there might be more surprises of that kind, uh, nasty surprises even uh, in in Stowe, I think. And that's also worth considering. 
that we don't know <laughs> how, how how badly things could turn out. And I think the 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 big uh, what I'm sort of learning on the fly here is 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 just how um, uh, incoherent Israeli governance seems to be at this point. I know about the protests and the Netanyahu's position and all of that. But just it's it's just seems unclear who's actually sort of running things in Israel at this point, and when there is a ceasefire, if that evolves into you know hopefully a a uh, longer lasting, more sustainable de-escalation of some kind, you know, will the Israeli <laughs> opposition and and Netanyahu's allies turn on him? What does he do? I mean, it's it's just it seems to me that Israel is sort of the big question mark in this, which is not usually the case. People's try to analyze, you know, Iran or Nasrallah or, or inscrutable Palestinian factional divides. But but at this point, I'm more curious about what's happening in Israel. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Sam, do you have a lesson learned or, or truth discarded, assumption discarded to point to? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that I had... Uh, Prior to October 7th, I mean, I guess I had kind of uh, assumed that, I mean, what seemed at the time to be sort of conventional wisdom uh, that, you know, that the Israelis could basically uh, keep the Palestinians down forever uh, and then sort of consign them to irrelevance through, you know, this apparatus of control that they had uh, uh, they had built up, um, that that could be... Uh, sustained forever uh and then uh hamas's attack on uh on october 7th uh seemed like it, it pretty clearly punctured that image of uh israel as uh impregnable and uh unassailable um that seems like uh, an image that maybe the israelis are attempting to uh, to reconstitute now through what they're doing in gaza uh, but it doesn't seem uh, possible for them to uh, uh to uh you know to 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 rebuild their image of of strength of competence uh through this kind of display of uh of brute force uh and their you know their a bit their inability to undo uh, the blow that was struck on October seventh. It seems like it is uh, just really profoundly uh, destabilizing uh, for Israel and for the region. Uh, I think that I mean that was probably uh, I think that was a large part of the intent on Hamas's part. Um, but yeah, I mean it does mean that uh, that Israel now is a real wild card and it's why you know these uh, these reports about uh, you know israeli discussions of uh maybe some sort of uh like a large-scale attack on hezbollah in lebanon uh interventions by the americans uh to uh you know to prevail on israelis to uh, to discourage them from uh provocative actions in lebanon uh or some large-scale um preemptive war, uh, I think should, uh, I mean, they make me worried. Yeah, I think just one, I'm going to add one last point. Just, you're going to have to indulge me or you can just edit it out. It's my pleasure. No way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have been genuinely, uh, shocked by some of the rhetoric that has emerged from the Israeli government post October 7th. Um, 
you know, this, you know, forthright discussions of uh, siege and disease as an effective uh, policy tool to inflict uh, punishment on uh, Gazans writ large, uh, the discussions about forced transfer, um, and then even some of the uh, some of the rhetoric that you know borders on sort of uh, eradicationist, um, and um, that's been really disturbing. Uh, and and um, you know even you know I've you know I've, I've observed this conflict for uh, uh, a very long time at this point, um, but I um, I have been a little uh, surprised at at uh, at how casual some of that rhetoric is, um, how widespread it is, and uh, and the fact that you can just pick up uh, a newspaper and uh, and be reading um, this kind of extremist rhetoric, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't bode well for uh, for um, any kind of near term um, cessation of hostilities. Right. And I mean, we you know, we've we've grown accustomed to eliminationist rhetoric from groups like Hamas. Uh, and it's maybe a measure of I'm not the first person to say this, but of Israel's full integration into the region, uh, that its politicians now sound uh, uh, a lot more like uh, uh, some of their local uh, neighboring uh, peers and leaders than than like the um, Western allies in whose image they originally created a lot of their politics. Uh, so. I guess I'll just say really quickly, you know, my, my big assumption that, that, uh, as, as I think collapsed by events is there, there were a lot of arrangements that I thought were terrible in the, in the region, uh, in the Middle East, wider Middle East that I thought were indefinitely sustainable. Um, and you all have pointed to a few of the ones that, that have turned out not to be. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that the, the sort of, level of, of sort of governance, govern, rule through misgovernance and violent repression, uh, that sort of works until it doesn't, you know, it's worked for so long in, in so many different contexts that I've grown almost inured to it. So things that I thought were just not sustainable, you know, the, 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 the misrule of Egypt, the, the Israeli approach of, you know, quote unquote, mowing the lawn as a way of dealing with its relationship with Palestinians, you know, the Iraqi arrangement with its, uh, uh, hybrid militia actors and so on, they, they seem untenable and yet they've endured for, in some cases, many, many decades. Uh, and I've, uh, come to think, well, I guess maybe I was wrong and they're indefinitely sustainable. And it turns out that they're not indefinitely sustainable. They're just sustainable for a long time. And we're now in a, in a, in a chapter where, uh, at least some of those arrangements are unraveling, uh, and a lot of, cascading changes are going to result. Uh, so listen, I'm so glad all uh, three of you could come on order from ashes. Uh, I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of century international. And I've been talking to my former colleague, Michael Wahid Hanna, who is now the U S program director at international crisis group. Uh, and my colleagues, Aaron Lund and Sam Heller. Uh, this is order from ashes. And, uh, I just want to commemorate that it was more than six years ago on July 18th, 2017 that the four of us recorded the first ever uh, Order from Ashes podcast in Beit Duma uh, in Lebanon uh, during our uh, group meeting that we had. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of bizarre to be uh, back, uh, <laughs> back on the podcast waves with uh, the three of you uh, having this conversation uh, uh, with so much having changed and so much still being the same. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, this is Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Till next time. <laughs>
Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.